Well, to pull back the curtain a bit on uh, pastoral ministry training for you, uh, you might be wondering, what do they tell a pastor in preparation for Easter Sunday, particularly when it comes to the sermon? You might imagine that they say things like, make sure that the gospel is articulated clearly and thoroughly. Or they might say, come with an attention grabber, a joke or something that appeals to the masses. A, a wide swath of the population will understand the humor. And if that's what you think, the answer is no. They tell you to keep it short. So <laughs> you have to figure out the other stuff on your own. Many of us don't know the 1931 hymn, Morning Has Broken, because of the author or the year it came out. I don't know if there's many of us here that were uh, conscious in 1931 of the musical goings of hymns. Most of us know it because of the 1970s Cat Stevens recording. Is that how you know Morning Has Broken? Right? Many of us know that. If you don't know that, YouTube. All right? Cat Stevens. Whatever way you come to this song, though, Whatever way that song has shown up in your uh, vocabulary, your lexicon, or your musical uh, database, uh, the opening lines are rather unforgettable. Morning has broken like the first morning. It's a welcome tune for the day, for sure. As you hear the tune, it kind of welcomes you to a, a great spring day, unlike the one outside right now, but a great spring day. It's a welcoming tune, but it's also an apt summary of today's gospel reading. It actually serves as a great title for uh, our reading this morning. The count uh, in our gospel begins early on the first day of the week. That's how verse 1 begins. And here the author could have chosen to say, on the third day. Instead of saying on the first day of the week, they could have said on the third day, making or marking that passage of time between Friday, the crucifixion, and now what's about to happen here on Sunday. They could have also uh, made a connection there with John chapter 2 in verse 19 where Jesus says, and in three days I will rise, I'll raise it up. And so using that three-day kind of concept. But instead, this author says early on the first day of the week, which is a cue for us. It's supposed to cue our attention to something. It's supposed to draw us to a place, an old familiar story as we're listening and hearing themes uh, here in the text. And John does that over and over again throughout his gospel but at this point, he wants us to hear familiar language. We, of course, might just say, just say Sunday and get on with the action. But John wants us to do something more than move hastily through the story here. Instead, he wants us to remember how this gospel began. John chapter 1 begins in the beginning. And that's a nod to what you may already know, the language of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 begins with beginning language. And that's precisely what John's going with here. And it's for good reason. The reader is supposed to connect the two stories. The story for sure, but also the prominent figure of those stories as well. In fact, the figure who quite literally graces the pages of this story. Something new is happening here. When we get to John chapter 1, we're to hear that something new is happening. When we get to John chapter 20, we're supposed to see that newness is going down right now. And so we anticipate its unveiling here when we hear the first day of the week. But also note what happens that first day of Genesis. We go back to Genesis chapter 1. We see the day when God said, let there be light, was what he says in that first day. 
course, the discerning listener to today's resurrection story hears first day of the week and anticipates coming light, right? We should anticipate that because that's where Genesis goes. The savvy reader, though, all right, so if you're more than discerning, how many people are savvy here this morning? Like you say, I'm savvy. Business cards can be printed later. But the savvy reader of John not only expects it, but knows that light has featured prominently throughout the first chapter of the gospel and throughout the story itself. We have, in fact, we read in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light that shines in the darkness. And here in this resurrection story, it fills out the rest of that verse. Darkness did not overtake it. And following the promise in chapter 1, verse 9, namely true light that enlightens everyone, we see cues here of how the new creation, again, John in Genesis, this new creation will span the landscape, how new life will take shape and fresh understanding will burst forth. An unnamed disciple is the first of many who can say that they saw and they believed when he shows up at that empty tomb and just simply sees the leftovers from a resurrection. But then there's Mary, who will later join these ranks. When she hears Jesus in verse 16, call her by name. Each is able to perceive something that even moments earlier they could not. In their natural, they couldn't understand it. It's a real transformation of their lives and their understanding. It's literally that entering into new creation that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The old is gone, the new has come. But even amidst the seeming triumphs of the story, there's Peter. And oftentimes when we read the gospel narratives, we oftentimes end it with, and then there's Peter. Apparently this gospel writer didn't realize he would go on to become the first pope. Because here's Peter, not as the first one who believes, not as the first one who gets called by name, but rather he's there as one who joins that camp of folks who are just wondering, who see the evidences of resurrection and still are wondering. They don't know. And I think the beauty of that picture of Peter here is God's not done with Peter. And many of us might fall in that same type of camp where we, we kind of wonder about it, but we don't, we don't exactly know And so we kind of walk through our days that way. And to know that God's not done with you either in the midst of that. But here's Mary again. She is seen here throughout the text as one who's weeping. She comes to the tomb with tears. And she isn't able to see who Jesus is even when he stands before her alive and talking. But even so, and I said this to the group that gathered uh, this morning at 6 a.m., I love the even so's. Even so, amidst what life was throwing her at this point, the way she was experiencing that entire terrible weekend, remember, her rabbi, her friend, her teacher, her Lord, was persecuted, was beaten, was suffering on a cross just a few days before. They saw him dead, and they were coming to the tomb with full expectation to visit and to offer honor and respect, but to a dead body who was their friend. And so she's gone through a lot here. But even so, in that, Jesus will call her by name. That she's known. That she's known by the risen Lord. And her perception in all of this changes. Her understanding of who she's speaking with and whose presence she's in, that all changes in that moment. She doesn't come with a great knowledge of Scripture. She doesn't come with a vast theological vocabulary in that moment. 
It wasn't what she knew that even got her to this place of knowing who was talking to her and calling her by name. But rather, it was who knew her. It was who knew her. And who knows each one of us. This same Jesus who calls her his own, who claims her and calls her by name. And that sounds reminiscent of something we hear earlier in John's Gospel. In John chapter 10, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. Clearly Jesus is using metaphor here. But he calls on those he knows. Those who are marked and belong to him. And they hear that voice. But he knows their name. He knows your name. He knows you. And in the world that we live in now where it feels more dangerous and difficult, we live in challenging times, but we live also in a time where we have unprecedented access to one another. For some, that's very, very scary. For others, it feels like the possibility of, of great social networking and forming of relationship. But yet at the very same time, when the digital interface has allowed us to be connected, we feel so disconnected. Our friend groups are large online, but are becoming smaller in real time. To know that there's one who knows our name, who knows us, who claims us, who wants us to be with him. That's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing for us today. It was a powerful thing for them in the first century. And this, of course, is all a nod to Genesis, this John passage. Not as a quote, not these portions that we're going to talk about here in a second, but as a garden meeting. How appropriate it is to be meeting in the garden, amidst the tomb, the gardener. Mary wasn't completely wrong on that note. She was talking to the gardener. Here as she talks to this resurrected Jesus, the second Adam now stands before her. The resurrected Christ, the one who created the garden and placed humanity within that garden. And here they stand in the garden, not with a conversation about death and condemnation, not a conversation about curses and being sent away, but rather we have those who are welcomed to, who are invited to a new possibility, a new kind of life, an abundant life, a life of unfettered relationship with their creator and reconciled amongst their fellow human creatures. G.K. Chesterton talks about this sudden change that exists here within uh, this text in his writing, The Everlasting Man. He says, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. And God wants to walk with you today, friends. Today, morning has broken, like that first morning. And we, in hearing the account of these ancient witnesses, are invited to hear and to respond. Like Mary, we're invited to go and bear witness. But we're also called to be people that experience the love of God, that embrace of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, Jimmy, what, a, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? Well, let me give you a quote that might help you understand how you are to live in the coming days. Does it come from a theological text? No. Does it come from a vast, ancient source? No. It comes from the Shawshank Redemption. 
I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living or get busy dying. God does not want us to be busying ourselves with death. But rather, God has claimed us and welcomes us, invites us by name to experience the life that is in Jesus Christ so that we can get busy living. Friends, this morning, my prayer for you and the heart of resurrection is that you too would experience the love of God and know the peace of God. Be one who lives life to the full as God has intended it for you and me. May it be so for each one of us in our